Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You're listening to a podcast from the South China Morning Post. Hello, and welcome to a special feature-length edition of the China Geopolitics Podcast. My name is Chad Bray from the business desk here at the South China Morning Post. And just for something different, we thought we might put together a special episode analyzing China and its relationship with the United Nations. The month of July in 2021 is somewhat significant because it marks not only one, but two 50-year anniversaries for China and its relationship with the international community. On July 15, 1971, 17 members of the United Nations requested that a question of the, quote, restoration of the lawful rights of the People's Republic of China in the United Nations, end quote, be placed on the agenda of the 26th session of the UN General Assembly. Fifty years seems like a good time to reflect on how China's relationship has changed with the UN over the decades, especially in the past eight years under its president, Xi Jinping. Incidentally, it's also 50 years since a particular American diplomat, at the time the U.S. Secretary of State, Henry Kissinger, made a secret visit to China. And of course, I would say that that influenced the way people thought about the China representation issue at the United Nations. I mean, recognizing that the U.S. was beginning to shift its policy. And then, of course, the fact of the, the, the Kissinger visit made a huge difference when it came to thinking about Chinese representation and that vote in October 1971. That's Professor Rosemary Foote. She's a senior research fellow at the University of Oxford's Department of Politics and International Relations, and a research associate at the Oxford China Center. She's been publishing articles and books analyzing China's domestic politics and its international relations for roughly the last 40 years, but her latest book is most timely. It's titled China, the UN, and Human Protection, Beliefs, Power, Image. What are some of the things that you're reflecting on upon this anniversary? Well, I've been reflecting on the changes over the decades in terms of China's relationship with the United Nations, changes and continuities, really. Um, clearly, when the PRC was established for 1949, um, it expected entry into the United Nations, expected to take over the seat from the Chinese nationalist government. And you could see a kind of a fairly positive relationship with the United Nations in those in those early years because of that expectation and the status that membership uh, confers. But of course, then um, we go through a very long period of uh, a highly politicized um, environment in which this question of representation comes to the fore. It's obviously knocked off course by um, the onset of the Cold War and the United States' relationship with China during the years when the Cold War is at its height. 
Um, and the Korean War clearly influenced very prominently the uh, ability of China to enter and take over the seat from the nationalist government now residing on Taiwan. So this becomes a very contentious issue. It becomes a contentious issue between um, the United States and its allies, because many thought the you know, the presence of uh, the PRC government uh, fully established in Beijing um, meant that its representation should be um, permitted within UN um, bodies. And that in uh, begins to uh, it begins ob be to become obvious that the United States position on this steadily loses support as you move through the 50s and into the early 60s. Then you have a China, of course, that is uh, takes a radical turn um, from particularly from the early 1960s, 63, and then through the Cultural Revolution, takes a very radical turn. And it actually adopts a very negative attitude towards the United Nations. It talks about needing to set up an alternative body um, and something that was more representative of the sort of what it called the emerging forces in world politics, more representative in particular of the developing world. Um, so, so you have a period of strong antagonism. And then again, as the Cultural Revolution moves into a, a more conservative phase, a, a more controlled phase, as you move to the end of the 1960s, you get China's uh, Beijing's uh, re-consideration uh, of its relationship with the United Nations and an understanding that its uh, legitimacy requires it to be uh, to have a relationship with that body, to be represented in that body. Um, and so again, from the early 1970s, you have um, a desire to enter. Um, so, so that's a very highly politicized uh, environment for the first couple of years of the Cold War. And you get a debate in China about whether this is the United Nations of the United States, as it were, that it's, it's a US-led organization, or is this a UN that actually can play an independent role in world politics? And I don't think that the Chinese really accept that the UN has a kind of an autonomous, independent role in world politics, really until the 1980s, actually. Um, and so for the first decade of Chinese membership, it's really very distant. It often doesn't take part in voting. It is not a question of abstaining on votes. It's not participating in votings on, on the Security Council. So it's only in the 1980s, and partly as a result of developing country a discussion with Chinese uh, diplomats that you begin to see China take a more forward role within the organization. And of course, it mattered that Deng Xiaoping came to power and argued that China had to be internationally engaged. It needed to join international organizations. It needed to join non-governmental organizations and begin to play a larger role in world politics. And I would say that we have another turning point with the advent of the Xi Jinping um, administration. So the presidency of Xi Jinping has brought two or three things, I think, in terms of China's relationship with the uh, United Nations. Uh, it's brought a fourth statements um, that you can find in past 
past uh, presidencies, but nevertheless are emphasised under Xi Jinping to the effect that uh, the United Nations is the core multilateral organisation in world politics and the UN Charter is supposedly the framework for organising interstate relations. So that's you know, articulated very, very firmly. The second thing is that he's talked a lot about China needing to lead the reform of global governance to play a role in setting rules um, and using the UN as the venue, if you like, in order to demonstrate this more active, this more ambitious Chinese position. And then the third thing is actually to make the argument that China was the first signatory on the UN Charter and therefore, it's always had an important role in the creation of post-war order. And it should continue to have that important role in shaping post-war order. So it's, it's been an interesting, varied relationship, but always one in some senses that's indicated that the United Nations is an important legitimating body for you for for china for 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 its beliefs for the kinds of ideas that it wishes to articulate for its relationships with a, a wider body of states and, and professor I, I wanted to talk a little bit about about your book in this you, you, you say in the introduction that um, beijing is attempting to shape the united nations from uh, within so I'm, I'm curious sort of what what kind of examples you're, you're seeing of that and what sort of supports that, that, that move? Obviously, we've seen Xi say a, a number of things recently about the UN and, 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 and where he wants it to head. Yes. The, the book is uh, focused in particular on the idea of human protection, um, as, you, as you can tell from the title of the book. But it's, the, the idea behind that is that we've had a UN particularly in the post-Cold War era that has put the emphasis on the security of the individual as well as the security of the state. It's, it's adopted a much broader definition of what represents threats to international peace and security. And therefore, what goes on inside states is seen as a, as a security issue that should be on the Security Council agenda. Now, that's something that the Chinese and the Russians, but the Chinese in particular, in, uh, in terms of my focus, they contest because they argue that state sovereignty is the most important norm in international relations, providing order out of chaos, if you like, non-interference in internal affairs. So that means that when sort of human protection issues come to the fore, whether that's something like protection of civilians in armed conflict or the women, peace and security agenda or the idea of the responsibility to protect, the Chinese are very likely to um, either um, shape resolutions in order to emphasize their particular perspectives or even to threaten um, use of the veto or even actually use the veto. I mean, that's another interesting, um, regrettable in many ways, development in terms of China's UN behavior. It now is more willing to contemplate and actually to use the veto. So for example, on the Syrian question, 
trying to keep Bashar al-Assad absolutely central to the resolutions, make sure there is not any attempt to overthrow him, no attempt at regime change, even questions about delivery of humanitarian aid instead of coming via the Turkish border or whatever it uh, might be, uh, it all to be uh, promoted through the central governing authorities. Something like the um, responsibility to protect the idea that if there are mass atrocity crimes, then the international community has a duty to respond in various ways. That doesn't necessarily mean military intervention. That can mean negotiation. That can be good offices, negotiating strategies and so on. But the, the Chinese emphasis is very much on it's a state's responsibility to protect its citizens from mass atrocity crimes. If the international community has a role, then that role is determined by the state in question. It's not determined by outsiders. So there's this strong emphasis on nationally determined solutions and the strong emphasis on the state um, as opposed to civil society. So in the book, I talk about the contestation between a UN that emphasizes a three-pillar structure, international peace and security, development, human rights, as being at the core of UN activity. And China, uh, as an alternative, is putting forward what I describe as a triadic model that puts emphasis on the state, on the idea of social stability of societies and economic development. And if you have those three things in place, China argues that human protection is better guaranteed. So it, it's looking, if you like, in different ways, in different venues to push that particular uh, set of understandings and also to try to frame documentation, resolutions, actual policy on the ground uh, in, in accordance with, with those ideas. But it's a difficult thing to do. I mean, you know, the Security Council is made up of five permanent members, each with veto power. And so you have to reconcile uh, uh, unless you want the organisation to fail entirely. And clearly China doesn't want the organisation to fail. So it's caught in a quite a tricky place on, on a number of these issues. Yeah, and and I wanted to circle back with a l little bit of that about sort of the the, the state versus um, you know humanitarian issues. So you know, for example, right now we 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 are seeing increasing calls for the uh, United Nations Human Rights Committee to uh, send observers into Xinjiang, and um, you know, I, I'm curious how you see China managing you know that kind of situation where where they've been quite vocal against yeah. other countries talking about what they say is an internal matter. Yes. I mean, well, they've managed it in the Human Rights Committee. Um, sorry, the Human Rights Council. Uh, they've managed it by um, generating a wide base of support behind their own position on what is going on in Xinjiang. So the, uh, the, the Human Rights Council is made up of 47 member states, but you uh, even if you're not actually on the committee, you can put your name to resolutions or to documents, statements, letters, whatever. So what has been happening in the Human Rights Council is um, the a number of democratic states in particular um, around the world, and that's not just Western European or the Americans, it's a wider range of states, have been 
um, trying to put the Xinjiang issue in particular on the agenda to have a resolution to back uh, various of the UN reports that uh, have findings that there may well be mass atrocities uh, taking place in there, may well be genocide and so on. The Chinese have countered that with statements um, often put forward by countries like Belarus, for example, um, which is saying really that actually China's human rights um, uh, protections have increased enormously over the years, that what is going on in, in Xinjiang is actually a, an anti-terrorism operation. It's not a human rights matter. And um, that uh, China actually should be congratulated for bringing stability to that province, for bringing uh, greater uh, levels of development and, and the like. So there's a real duel going on within the Human Rights uh, Council and, and beyond. But there's also one other thing that's important about all of this is that the High Commissioner for Human Rights has been asking to visit since about late 2018, I think, and the Chinese have imposed conditions on that visit. And she is unwilling, has been unwilling to accept those conditions. Uh, and so that is a weakness, I, obviously, I would argue anyway, in Chinese position, in, in that they wish to impose conditions. They're not assuming that she would go in there with an open mind. And I think Bachelet actually has a lot of credibility as a high commissioner for human rights. And, and can I can I interrupt you a second and, and ask if you could give uh, our listeners a little bit of the, some of the conditions that China is trying to uh, implement uh, for such visits? Um, the, the, the conditions haven't been spelled out in detail, actually, um, but I imagine that they will be along the lines of, you know, visiting, that the visit is controlled, if you like, by, by, by the Chinese side, where you can go, who you can talk to, um, whether you can meet people on their own, um, you know, how far afield you can travel and the like. So I don't know the detail um, of the conditions, but I just know that there is a negotiation going around, going on around those conditions. I mean, the other parts of the UN as well, the special rapporteurs, the special mechanisms, have also produced reports on Xinjiang and, and argued that, you know, this needs to be looked at. Um, and again, China has tried to deal with that implied criticism by um, arguing that the uh, special mechanisms, the special rapporteurs are going beyond their legal mandates they are not um, impartial on this matter and the like. So they've tried to sort of delegitimate that part of the human rights process with respect to Xinjiang. Um, and it doesn't look like it's uh, going to be resolved anytime soon. Um, yeah, it, it's interesting that that they're having those kinds of arguments about conditions when uh, last year you had uh, Xi Jinping uh, share four proposals for the United Nations to you know play a better role internationally. And he talked yeah. about the, these four things. He said, stand firm for justice, uphold the rule of law, promote cooperation, and focus on real action. But yes. does, does that, you know, sort of call conflict with China's own actions? And, and you know, how, how is Beijing really trying to reshape the UN in, in Xi's vision or is Xi's well, image? Yeah, it, I mean, in, in, in the case of Xinjiang in particular, they would argue very strongly, much as I've said earlier, that this is an internal matter 
and and this is uh, I mean if it is an international matter it's to do with counterterrorism and therefore that's an important international norm which we are addressing and dealing with but actually this is an internal matter so uh, as I've suggested the vision of the United Nations is a very traditional one it's a sort of a Westphalian interstate body as far as the Chinese are concerned and that's what they would like to keep it as. So when they talk about rule of law or they talk about the UN Charter, their interpretation of the the UN Charter is one that emphasizes very much the state-based nation no, notion of the organization, the state-based notion of the United Nations and the idea that in a sense it is an interstate body that has a secretariat but that secretariat is in many senses not an independent autonomous body but one that um, offers advice offers technical support um, um, and and uh, and interacts on a, in a sort of a reciprocal and and, and uh, mutual basis with with the state members but not not beyond that um, so uh, I think the the um, the main form of influence that I see is happening in the United Nations is to emphasize and centralize the role of uh, development as um, uh, in a conflict prevention role, in a stabilization role, in uh, a role that really has proven important for China they would argue, and successful for China and can actually um, help to solve some of these st uh, problems of state fragility that we see around the world. So I would argue that Xi Jinping's message in particular is to emphasize how important economic development, poverty reduction can be to the resolution of a number of um, the issues that the United Nations has been grappling with over a number of years. The problem with that, of course, is it's a structural issue. It's a long-term issue. It doesn't help us deal with immediate crises, um, Myanmar, Yemen, wherever. It doesn't help us interact um, in a way that uh, really necessarily is inclusive of wider societies. It's obviously uh, a, a formulation that downplays the emphasis on human rights that you get within uh, the UN Secretariat and, and within the UN Charter, I would argue, as well. Yeah, and, and I want to talk a, another bit about, in your book, uh, talking about China's development uh, model. Uh, you say that, um, you know, Beijing used the... Uh, uh, post-global financial crisis period to help spread its its benefits of, of its development model. I'm, I'm curious, you know, right now, and we're in this period of, 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 of COVID, and, um, you know, how is China sort of using the pandemic to, to spread its development model? Uh, you know, we've seen vaccines offered to various countries in Africa and, and other things. So I'm sort of curious how you're seeing that um, play out right now in, in this time period. Hmm. I mean, they, they, they have been um, arguing along the lines that, in a reactive sense, they've been arguing that the global financial crisis is a really good indication that the neoliberal economic model 
is unsuccessful and you need something different. And they point, obviously, to their own successes, uh, increases in GDP per capita, poverty reduction. And, of course, this year was chosen as the year to argue that absolute poverty has been removed in China entirely. So that message is coming over very strongly. The COVID story fits into that by... um, if you like, arguing that China has been able to keep death rates extraordinarily low, you know, and obviously the comparison with the United States is is an important one for them to to point up, um, that they have uh, policies in place that show the power of a what they would describe as a meritocratic state to actually work efficiently to keep numbers low, to uh, actually prevent uh, widespread um, uh, close downs of the economy, the domestic economy, uh, to get on top of these situations very, very quickly. So it points up, if you like, the efficiency um, and the almost the... Um, that, that, it's a, that it's a more caring society in many ways because it's arguing that it's actually, you know, saving large numbers of people's lives and, of course, arguing that it is, it is willing to pass on vaccines to the developing world, whereas uh, other parts of the world, the Western states in particular, have pledged but not necessarily delivered in, in, in large numbers and so on. So um, it, it obviously it's an environment in which it can push the model of the socialist state that focuses very much on um, uh, both uh, protection of its own citizens and, and uh, development issues as, uh, as, as a way of bringing about outcomes that are far better for, for large numbers of people and far better, of course, for people in, in poorer societies. Yeah, and, and uh, along those lines, uh, it, you know, we, we've seen China making a lot of uh, loans and, and as part of its Belt and Road Initiative over the last few years. So uh, how important ha- has that uh, you know, the Belt and Road been in, in transforming China's relationships with the United Nations, whether it be with other member states or with the body itself? The Belt and Road is obviously represented within the United Nations. I, I, I mean, if I could take a step back and 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 talk about Xi Jinping's pledges to the United Nations in 2015, I mean, there were both pledges in terms of troops, peacekeeping troops, standby forces, but also financial pledges. And one was the setting up of the Peace and Development Trust Fund, a 10-year fund, um, uh, of um, uh, two sections of it. One was devoted to um, the sustainable development goals and the other is f- for spending in the office of the Secretary General. Uh, Chinese um, are strongly represented in the committees that oversees how the funds are used. In the sustainable development goals section of the funding, um, the Belt and Road Initiative has been um, aligned with the sustainable development goals. So there is obvious reference to uh, Belt and Road funding when we're talking about sustainable development goal policies. There's a, um, 
serious UN representation at Belt and Road conferences. The Secretary General obviously has been to the two major conferences that have been held um, on the Belt and Road. And, and so, again, that ser has served, if you like, to legitimate the Belt and Road. So instead of thinking of it solely as China's bilateral relations with individual states on its borders and beyond, because uh, the Belt and Road, after all, reaches um, vast distances, um, it can say, actually, this is also a global public good. This is a multilateral framework as well. And look, lo and behold, the United Nations is associated with it, whether that's the UNDP or the Sustainable Development Goals. And uh, there have been moves by China to try to introduce um, the, uh, the phrase Belt and Road or to talk about Chinese development initiatives associated with the infrastructure. There have been moves to make direct reference to, to those developments in uh, UN Security Council resolutions, but there's something of a pushback um, by other Security Council members on that front. So yes, the UN is important to Belt and Road because it helps to kind of globalize it as a phenomenon, to legitimize it as a phenomenon. Yeah, and and and, and during that that period, that time frame, we we also have seen, in addition to China, actually committing troops to peacekeeping operations. But they become the second biggest financial contributor to the UN behind the United States. So, uh, how how closely is that funding tied to China's uh, ultimate strategic goals? Well, the funding. Um it is determined in part by the size of your economy. So there are certain obligations that come with economic size. Um, and um, But things like, um, obviously, the troop contribution, which is, as you know, because the Chinese make the point many, many occasions, they have more peacekeeping troops than all other permanent members combined and so on. So they have about two, two and a half thousand troops in the field in the 12 or 13 peace operations that are going on at present. Um, this is a, again, this is a, this is a important to the idea that China is a respectable global player. It's a responsible great power that as a P5 member has responsibilities and it's fulfilling these responsibilities. It's the second largest contributor, as you say, to the budget. It's the second largest contributor to the peacekeeping budget and so on. And obviously, whether or not you choose to exercise that power directly or indirectly, it's always there. Um, the notion that that funding is incredibly important. As you know, the UN is always strapped for cash, but it's been particularly strapped for cash in the, in the last few years. Um, and so uh, the, that, that gives them, obviously, it gives them position, it gives them influence in negotiation, um, it gives them on the budgetary committee and, and the like, you know, they, they're going to be listened to um, because of the position that they are in and because of the other commitments that they have made to the United Nations. Yeah, and having been in New York for many years before I was in Hong Kong, I, I'm well aware of the... Uh, status of the UN building and, and often the uh, uh, complaints people have about its upkeep. Um, let, let me uh, circle back to uh, a quote that, that, that you have in the book, uh, quoting Xi Jinping in uh, 2009 while visiting Mexico. He said, quote, first, China does not export revolution. Second, it does not export famine and poverty. And third, it does not mess around with you. So what else is there to say? 
Now, 12 years after that, um, you know, what else might you suggest there is to talk about uh, China's external relationships, whether it be within the South China Sea or with the United States? Well, obviously, there is a huge amount to say. Um, I mean, even in the, that statement in 2009, it was almost as though, you know, this is, this is China, it's a passive actor, it's a creator of order simply by doing nothing. You know, in other words, it doesn't kind of disorder the world. It just it just gets on with its own thing. And um, uh, and that's its major contribution. And the, clearly, it's always had much greater impact than that statement implies, either directly or indirectly. Simply, you know, just things like, you know, the largest consumer spender in the luxury goods market or or the highest emissions of of, of co2 you know so so it's a it it is out there in the world in a, in that kind of sometimes unintended way and makes a huge difference to the kind of world we live in now it's much more active and ambitious in terms of putting forward its own foreign policy interests so Instead of, if you like, just standing back rather passively, not disordering the world, if you like, it's now attempting to order the world. And that means that it has um, higher expectations about the deference of others to its interests. It's more willing to struggle for its interests. And it's more willing, if you like, to uh, argue that it has a rightful um, place in the world that others just have to accept and, and, and be able to, to deal with. So, I mean, we have to get used to all of this. A lot of this is perfectly understandable and legitimate. But at the same time, what China fails to do, I think, is to look at the world through the the eyes of others. It finds it extraordinarily difficult to think about what it means for its neighbours, that it has emerged as a major military, economic, political power in global politics with a range of interests that it wishes to see satisfied. You know, it, it sort of thinks of itself in some ways as put upon by others rather than this this um, macroeconomic actor of, of huge importance. And it, uh, it, it, I think that that sort of unwillingness, if you like, to compromise on some of its core interests uh, means that it's always going to find it difficult to lead by consent. I mean, I think the, the big problem about uh, China's increased power in many ways is that um, followership it depends rather more on the coercive elements within its policy than the idea of a kind of a legitimate uh, uh, consent to some of the goals. And this is particularly true in the South China Sea. I mean, the unwillingness to accept that other countries have reasonable claims, um, the unwillingness to think about that as a shared space, as it has been historically and, and the like, um, that's uh, that's um, you know an extraordinarily difficult thing for them to overcome. Except that they they seem to be wanting to overcome it basically by imposition rather than by agreement, um, and that's very uh, unfortunate, I think, and and I would argue is is a huge weakness in in Chinese policy. The other weakness I see is actually 
an unwillingness to allow Chinese that are not on the mainland to live in different ways. Why do we all have to live in the same kind of system, whether you're on Taiwan or in Hong Kong or, or, or wherever? Do you have to live in exactly the same way to be Chinese? I, uh, and in my view, that's a weakness in Chinese positioning, the, the, the inability, if you like, to think about the variegated ways in which we might all choose to live in, in law politics. Yeah, and and another thing I, I wanted to, to talk about, following up on 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 neighbors and sort of relationships with neighbors. Um, you've written about Russia and the U.S. and how they exist at sort of either end of the spectrum in the relationship with China. Putin and yeah. Xi seem to have a very good relationship. I believe they've. You, you mentioned in, in in the book about them uh, both inviting each other first for various visits, but then the U.S has increasingly had this more suspicious relationship. But within all of that, you sing out Japan as being the most successful of, of managing its relationship with China. Uh, quote, you say, Japan has been perhaps the most successful in selectively engaging with Xi's worldview where it benefits Japan. So I, I was wondering if you could unpack that a little bit for us and explain how Japan is selectively engaging. I, I know we've talked in the podcast recently about Japan seeking some more help from Europe um, in terms of, of having a military presence to help offset somewhat what, what's happening with China in, in the region. Yes. I mean, it's a very difficult balance to strike for the Japanese, obviously. Um, but, uh, and, they, and of course, they won't always get it right, and they haven't always got, got it right. But they have managed to sustain a close uh, interdependent economic relationship with China so far through very difficult political times. Um, and, and you have to remember this is, it, 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 it's twofold difficulty, isn't it? On the one hand, um, Japan is America's most important ally in, in the Asia Pacific region. And of course, um, Japan is also the alternative other, the, the, you know, the difficult relationship of the war years and so on with China. So very, very difficult relationship to to get right um, but they seem to have been able to do it by if you like moderation in um, uh, language um, uh, a continuation of the economic contacts and the economic relationship but also if you like drawing on the power of others to fulfill roles so you know much more sort of um indirect um i mean you may think of it as uh, as inappropriate way of going about it but it's a way in which they've dealt with the fact that they are always going to live in a region in which China is a dominant player, uh, a major player, their their neighbour. Um, but at the same time, they wish to retain as much agency as possible, as much autonomy, policy autonomy as they possibly can. So actually trying to think of ways, uh, using language very carefully, um, Belt and Road is quite an interesting example of where the Japanese have not sort of been outright dismissive of it. They, they haven't signed up. They haven't got their memorandum of understanding with, with China. But nevertheless, they have signed up for some joint infrastructure projects and so on. You know, the possibility of the two countries working together on those kinds of projects in Africa or elsewhere is not uh, impossible to conceive and so on. So actually sort of trying to find um, ways of moderating the, the high levels of tension that 
of course exist in that particular bilateral relationship. And, and not always getting it right, but never sort of pushing it to the point of an out, outright break. Um, and and, that, and that's obviously in part because Japan has its own um, levers that it can pull, particularly on the economic side and so on. So it's, uh, you know, but it is, a, it is a really very, very difficult one. And it does draw on the influence and power of others in order to fulfill some of the objectives that it might have. And, uh, Professor, I wanted to ask, is, is there anything else that, uh, that I should raise with you that perhaps you think our, our listeners would like to hear more about? Um, <laughs> wasn't expecting that one. Um, <laughs> that, that's the curveball my producer throws. So, <laughs> yeah, I mean, the, I mean, the, I suppose if if you were to ask me, where has China made most progress in the UN setting in terms of its own aims and objectives? I would say in the human rights area. Um, and I would say this is partly because it's emphasised development as a foundational right and has been able to, for the first time actually, to pass resolutions at the Human Rights Council that embody a number of its central ideas about um, development as a, as a crucial human right. So I would say that, you know, they're, sh they're shaping that discourse um, and shaping the institution of the Human Rights Council in a way that's not possible with the Security Council, um, because simply partly because of the design, the difference in design between the Council, the Human Rights Council and the Security Council, but also because um, there are opportunities within that Human Rights Council to elaborate your particular perspectives on rights, you know, to hold special exhibitions, to use statements, to use resolutions, to use other uh, mechanisms, if you like, to set out your stall on human rights. And they've done that. I mean, so there is a there is a criticism that's coming from them on the idea of universality of rights. There's a criticism of the idea of indivisibility of rights. There's an emphasis on development as the primary right and so on. And there is a obviously constant reference to their own uh, 40 years of development as something to not necessarily to be fully emulated, but nevertheless as providing some kind of vision for others. So I'd say that the biggest challenge in, in, in terms of um, uh, China and, and, and global order is to the way in which we think about human rights. Professor Foote, thank you so much for your time. A big thanks to Professor Rosemary Foote. Her new book is China, the UN, and Human Protection, Beliefs, Power, Image. Stay up to date with everything happening with China and the international community on scmp.com. You can follow us on Twitter at SCMP Economy. And my name is Chad Bray. I'm at Chad Bray on Twitter. Thanks for joining us. Have a good week, and we'll see you later in the week on Friday. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. 
Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.